Welcome to episode 13 of Leading in a Climate Changed World, a podcast from Olivia Mythodrama. In this episode, Robin speaks to Dr. Raj Thamotheram, founder and chair of Preventable Surprises, a London-based think-do tank that seeks to drive behaviour change within the investment sector. The episode features an in-depth conversation about climate consciousness within the finance and investment sectors, showing the force behind sustainability shouldn't just be about the energy industry. Raj talks about how governmental policy and finance can be the levers to positive climate action, but also why enough is not being done yet. A large focus of the episode is leadership within the business world and how people do not have to be part of a senior management team or directorship to instigate positive change. They discuss which companies and industries are doing the right thing and offer some helpful advice for becoming a positive maverick in the workplace. Raj and Robin discuss frankly about coping with the burden of the crisis and where we should be applying pressure to have the most impact. Please get in touch if you have any feedback or can recommend anyone who may be willing to take part in our podcasts or online interviews. The website is leadinginaclimatechangeworld.com and email us on hello at leadinginaclimatechangeworld.com. We'd also love to hear from you if you're doing anything which focuses on sustainable practice or a community cause dedicated to improving the environment or society in general. Give us a shout and we'll try and give you a plug. Don't forget to look out for us on Twitter and Facebook too. Okay, so it's about time I pass you over to Robin and Raj. Enjoy. So welcome everybody to our podcast series, Leading in a Climate Changed World. And today we have the great pleasure and privilege to talk to Dr. Raj Thamotheram. Um, Raj is founder and CEO of Preventable Surprises, a think-do tank, as opposed to a think tank, a think-do tank, focused on how investors can better manage systemic risks. After co-founding the Nuclear Freeze Campaign and Safer World, Raj worked in the development sector at ActionAid, where he was head of international advocacy, and the Ethical Trading Initiative as its first director. He then moved to where he feels the power really rests, which is in the world of finance. He worked for 12 years in the investment world as the head of ESG Investing, at one of the UK's biggest pension funds, USS, and as a global fund manager with AXA IM. He is a well-recognized pioneer in the field of long-term and responsible slash sustainable investing and writes regularly, including a monthly column for Investment Pensions Europe called Long-Term Matters. He also lectures widely, and most importantly of all, he is also with us today. So welcome, Raj. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Robin. And maybe I could ask you a very broad, general question about how are you personally feeling about the climate emergency? Mm. Uh, Very mixed. Um, Sometimes I'm very uh, angry when I think about the fact that people are happy to accept that we're on a path for four degrees warming. And that means, you know, probably billions, certainly hundreds of millions of people dying. Um, people who've had, you know, marginal contribution to the problem, and um, people who are not yet born or very young or poor, or so that makes me really angry. I, I get, I then get really sad. I think when I think about how blasé we are about that catastrophe, and that's not to mention all the um, 
biodiversity loss, the ecosystem loss. Um, what else? Um, Are you hopeful? You know, I, I, I think it's essential to be hopeful and I work hard to be hopeful. Um, some days it works, some days I just feel a bit despairing. Um, some days I just feel blank. Um, and I think the, the, the most important thing I feel is that, you know, this, this train is rolling at us and it needs uh, bravery and courage um, to respond to it. And it's gonna hit us. Uh, it is hitting us in different parts of the world. So I think it's, it's um, you know, the feelings are, are, are really important. The actions are uh, critical. And how do you, if I could just follow this personal thread for a moment, like how do you also work with those feelings of anger, sadness, maybe fear at times, like do you consciously work with them or you just kind of notice you have them and you drive on with, with action orientated days or? You know, I, I, um, I've also been diagnosed with a, a terminal uh, cancer uh, in the last couple of years. And I, I kind of deal with the, the two things almost like they're, you know, some mix of the same story. Um, it's not great news. You wouldn't wish it on anyone. And you need to thrive. I need to thrive in that situation. Um, and there are some things which help me help me thrive. And, and one of the things that helps me thrive in the real world around climate change is doing something which I think is constructive uh, and useful. Um, same same with, with the cancer. It's, uh, you know, eating well, enjoying life well, being around friends, getting the right therapy. You know, there are things which help and there are things which don't help. Yeah, well, I don't know if expressions of sympathy help or not, but we certainly want to extend our sympathy to you also. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And you also made a decision, as I said in the introduction, to focus in on the world of finance as the yeah. place where things happen. So yes. is it still your experience? Is, is finance one of the main levers that we need to work with around the climate emergency? You know, I, I oscillate in my mind between thinking policy and finance are the two levers, um, government policy. Um, I, I think on most days, um, the corporate world, the, the people who chug out the greenhouse gas emissions and cut down the rainforest and you know the, et cetera et cetera they are responding to signals from the finance industry um and i think that's where uh that's where a lot of change could happen um i've been doing this for <laughs> as you as you said uh, a, a couple of decades now um and i'm pleased to see that people are you know, in, in, in very important positions about Mark Carney, Bank of England, et cetera, recognizing that finance is probably the, of the critical challenge, that, uh, critical sector now. So when you say corporates are responding to signals from finance, maybe you could spell that out a bit for our audience. Not everybody will be familiar with, with what you mean by that. Sure. What are the signals well, are corporations responding? Yeah. Um, changing also. 
the most important one is companies are the executives of companies, the CEOs and all the people underneath them are rewarded very handsomely for delivering the quarterly number, the, sh the shareholder value capitalism concept, right? They're, they're, they're strongly incentivized to deliver a share price, which is, uh, that goes up. And in order to do that, they have certain targets. Uh, and those targets largely don't involve anything to do with what we've just been talking about. On the contrary, with um, high impact sectors like the fossil fuel companies or the energy utility companies or the auto companies or the industrial meat production companies or the, you know, a whole range of sectors, they're actively incentivized not to worry about this stuff. Um, and guess what? When you have clever people getting uh, a large amount of money not to worry about something, let's not be surprised when they don't worry about something. So who is worrying about something like where, where are the, where are the seeds of hope? And if we're also looking at leadership, where's the leadership in the finance, let's start in the finance sector. Where are you experiencing what's needed now? Well, when I joined uh, USS, which was um, something like in excess of 15 years ago, nearly 20 years ago now, um, it was a very niche issue to be involved in climate change. I remember when I set up the first meeting of something called the Investor Group on Climate Change, Institutional Investor Group on Climate Change, we were going in a taxi and a senior executive at my company, at my firm, said, I hope the meeting's a success, Raj, because it would be career limiting if it wasn't for you. And mm -hmm. um, it turned out that it was a great success and a packed meeting and IIGCC is now a major global player and, and certainly in Europe. But at that time it was, it was quite rare and now it's not. Um, there's an organization called the UN Principles of Responsible Investment and it has members who account for about 50% plus of all the investment dollars in the world, one in two investment dollars. So at one level, we've gone well past the tipping point. At another level, the incrementalism of the ESG or responsible investment project has resulted in very little real world change. And that gap between what the project was intended to do and what it's actually doing is why I set up an independent, non-conflicted think tank and advocacy group. And what have been the major fruits of preventable surprises? We have, a, an, we have a very large network of what we call positive mavericks, Robin, and I think you'd probably uh, enjoy that term and the people. And these are people who are within organizations trying to push their senior management to do more than the organization wants to do. Um, often they're acting without any formal authority uh, and without any uh, official remit to, to do what they're doing. Um, and we work with them to encourage them, to um, keep them on their toes, um, you know, like a, like a tough, uh, tough love coach might do. Um, and they allow us to do it. And it's a voluntary relationship. Uh, we don't pay them. They don't pay us. Um, um, but we collectively 
raise the standards of what's acceptable. So one of the things that we've been pushing, for example, is that uh, the key thing that investors could do in relation to companies is to be forceful stewards, assertively engage as owners and ask, ask the companies that they invest in and lend to, to produce transition plans aligned with um, the Paris Agreement, uh, net zero by 2050 at the latest. Um, and that, that was for several years way ahead of where investors were at. Investors were happy to ask for scenarios and vague declarations. And, and we and others have helped investors firm that up. Sounds great, and I'm, I'm happy that you feel there's a, there's a level of engagement that is, that is useful, for sure. And I'm wondering if we were to scan the globe now and look for the leadership, as you know, this is a podcast series about leadership. Where do you see, not only in finance sector, but including the finance sector, where do you see the kind of leadership that we need to bring about the corrections that we need and the, with the urgency that we need at the moment? Mm. Um. Not in finance, sadly. <laughs> um, I think I'm most motivated by, uh, most uh, excited by the uh, leadership role that young people are playing. You know, uh, Greta Thunberg is a, uh, a household name, but it's much, much more than Greta, right? It's, you know, it's individuals who we don't know and uh, are not famous, um, who've been doing very similar things and for reasons which are completely uh, unpredictable, she's known and all of them aren't. Um, and they're striking, they're talking to their parents, they're marching, they're, they're basically calling out adults for their immaturity and lack of authenticity. Um, and I think that's a, a very healthy sign. It's a very uncomfortable feeling to be uh, told you're being irresponsible by young people, but it's true. Um, the intergenerational irresponsibility of the leadership uh, group, the people at the top, is uh, unquestionable. Um, the other people who I'm kind of really interested by are the middle level managers in organizations who are kind of pushing down and pushing up at the same time um, and who are expanding their space to operate despite being kind of formally asked to. And these are the people that we work with in the finance sector, but there are people in government, people in public service, people in science, people in corporations, etc. cetera. Um, and last but not least, there are some individuals at the top who are pushing. Um, they are a small minority. Could you name um, you? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're people who uh, sadly everyone knows because they're so few. Um, Paul Pullman, formerly at Unilever, Antonio Guterres from UN Secretary General. You know, these kind of individuals in different sectors are going well, well beyond what their peers are doing. Um, and it's dangerous for them. You know, Paul Pullman's no longer at Unilever. Um, so it, it is a understandable, uh, it is understandable that so few people who, who are focused on, on the normal leadership agenda are avoiding dealing with this um, existential crisis. 
Right, and let's speak a little bit about the middle managers, because I imagine quite a number of people who listen to this might feel themselves in that kind of band. I mean, there right. will also be some CEOs who are listening to this, but people who are middle managers, because we often feel and, and work with some of those people too, and, and it feels like there's a, often a, a sense of, well, I can't really do so much because the CEO mm -hmm. or the board doesn't really get it or doesn't really back me. But what's your experience of, of the leverage and the power that the middle mm -hmm. managers also do have? Can I say bollocks? You can certainly, you've just said it. So I think um, in a friendly way, I would say um, that's rubbish. Um, the middle management have huge influence in an organization. Of course, they're being squeezed from both ends. They're vulnerable. They're, uh, they're facing all the same risks that the top management are. And, but they have tremendous power to both call their leadership into account, but also provide uh, safety for the, the staff below them to take action in their own sphere of operation. Um, obviously, if they're in silo A and they try to uh, meddle in silo Z, they will be slapped down and uh, told to get back into their box. But within their own silo, they have huge uh, space. They have space about who they recruit. They have space about um, how they incentivize behavior. Um, and different companies, different organizations, different firms could do a lot um, at the middle management. I call it middle out change. Yeah, that's very inspiring to hear because, as I say, we often hear that there's a limitation, but you're also speaking to the potential and the power that there is at that level also. Both to, both to kind of manage up and to create a safe space for the, for the people that they lead to. So, of course... You know, I think, and this I'm sure is nothing new to you and your network, but leadership is not a, um, a position in an organization, right? It's a, it's a choice of activities which distinguish the person from being a execution, op operational, or even a, a management uh, person. And, and, and that's, that's what I mean by leadership. Yeah, and I think we would agree with that. And maybe we can build on that and tease out some of the core qualities or characteristics of the kind of leadership that we need at the moment. So you spoke mm. about Greta Thunberg, someone who's speaking truth to power. There's courage. What other kind of qualities do you see needed at the moment? And also, how can we develop those in people? Um, I think a, a really critical quality is the ability to collaborate across um, division silos out, outside one's box, outside one's, one's span of management. So I see people in my sector, in finance, for example, who are, who are pushing the boat, collaborating with competitors, I see them col collaborating internally with uh, people who might be considered um, obstacles. Um, so for example, in my own experience, I'm aware that some of my most impactful actions came from building alliances with the risk officer or the legal uh, head or the um, head of marketing or whatever, you know, because these people have, mainstream spheres of influence and the CSR ESG person um, 
is in many organizations a kind of bolt on. Um, and unless ESG professionals, CSR professionals build those kind of internal alliances, they're going to be treated as marginal. And maybe again, because we have a very mixed audience, maybe you can just spell out what CSR and ESG stands for for people. Ah, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, we all have our jargon, don't we? Um, yeah. CSR is corporate social responsibility. So these are the people in companies who are typically dealing with climate change or biodiversity loss or, 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 or social issues as well. Um, and, and their equivalent in the finance community uh, are typically referred to as ESG professionals, environmental, social and governance professionals. Right. So you said something very interesting about, about collaboration and collaborating with competitors. And I wonder if we could take a little look at that because that's a very radical thing to do. And I wonder what enabled some people to do it and what the fruits are. And maybe you could just speak a bit to that. Sure. You know, it's not that radical. A lot of uh, sectors operate very collaboratively to protect their own interests. Um, trade associations, for example, are institutional mechanisms for, for that kind of collaboration. Um, so to, to, to challenge what you just said, I don't think it's rare. It's just it's not being used in order to uh, deliver societal benefit. Um, and that's what I'm talking about. It's pre-competitive collaboration, basically. Um, it works best, I think, at the sectoral level. So for example, um, mining companies post the Valet uh, um, catastrophes in Brazil. Um, you know, where, where, where many hundreds of people were, were uh, killed and, and huge environmental damage was done by, by the dams bursting. The, the sector as a whole has decided to belatedly um, increase its uh, safety standards for those kind of dams. Uh, the same happened with the nuclear industry post Fukushima, um, the, the Japan uh, crisis. Sadly, the sectors tend to wait until some horrid uh, problem has happened to, to, to react. And what we need to do with the impending climate crisis or, you know, the climate crisis that we're starting to experience is to move into mitigation and, 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 and prevention activity before the worst of the crisis has hit, because by the time that happens, it's way too late. It will be way too late. Right. So I wonder if we can build a bit more on other qualities or characteristics you think are necessary in leadership at the moment and where, again, where you might be seeing some of those things. You also mentioned Mark Carney earlier as the governor of the Bank of England as someone who was kind of getting it, but you said there also isn't really enough of this leadership in the finance sector. So I guess there's limits to power and influence also. Yes. I mean, you know, Mark Carney is uh, a regulator at the, at the top of his game, um, leads the Bank of England, and has used his position in the international network to trigger uh, other regulators to come together, the French, the Dutch, the whole range of 
other regulators. But interestingly, um, although Mark is Canadian, the Canadians have been very slow to come to the game. They are kind of observing the situation there. And the people who are almost uniquely not uh, in the game uh, in terms of um, national banking regulators at the Fed, the US. So it's not a function of intelligence or training or resources or um, you know, any of those issues. It's a function of lack of conflicts of interest and bravery. Um, and and um, in petrostate countries where regulators or corporate executives have been captured by that by that culture, there is a an unwillingness to stand up. Um, you see it in Russia, you see it in Gulf states, you see it in Brazil, you see it in USA, you see it in Australia. You see it in many countries where the government is uh, captured. Um, and sadly, you see it in the corporate sector too. Some of the biggest, the very biggest financial sector organizations are headquartered in the US and they're the, doing amongst the least of their, the banks, the insurance companies, the investment consultants, et cetera. And I think that it, that's brought home to me that you know, in these global sectors where all the executives go to the same kind of Ivy League or equivalent business schools, they go through the same professional indoctrination process, they have the same training, the same culture, they move around organizations almost like um, uh, geography doesn't matter. On issues like climate change, suddenly cultural norms become very important. Um, and that's that's the challenge that we have to break break through. Right. Say more about that. The cultural norms have become important. You know, the 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 backdrop to globalization and, and how modern finance operates is that you could be you could have a passport which is from any country in the world, but you will have been educated probably at um, one of a few leading business schools and you would have gone through uh, typically a, a, a global accreditation process. So for example, the CFA for investment people. So at one level, regardless of, you know, what your nationality is, what your language is, what your passport is, you think and act and respond in an identical fashion to your peers anywhere in the world. Um, there is much greater peer cultural cohesion than, you know, what your passport is and what your, your mother tongue is. Aside from climate change, um, and a few other issues where, where values and ideology kick in, um, for example, gender, for example, um, anti-discrimination uh, issues. But, but climate change is, I think, it's most obvious now. Um, so, for example, just to get 
nitty gritty, there is an organization, can I mention names? Yes, please do, yeah. Okay, so there's an organization called Marsh, which is a global player in the insurance uh, world, and it has multiple subsidiaries, um, several of which are very competent on climate change. Mercer Investment Consulting, for example, is very competent on climate change. Marsh itself, produces the annual risk report for the World Economic Forum. And this annual risk report over many years has been notching up that climate and environmental issues are the biggest, the most dangerous um, risk issues that the corporate world faces. And yet Marsh is not even signed up to the very basic um, TCFD process that Mark Carney kicked off. Um, and why would also, that be? Why would they not sign up to that? It's also the the bro it's one of the brokers for the Adani Coal Project in um, Australia, which will have a devastating impact if it kicks in. Um, well, I would love you to talk to <laughs> uh, senior people or even middle people at Marsh, but I think I, I use them as an example because they have all the competence within the group to know about the dangers of climate change. Indeed, parts of the group are selling themselves strongly on their competence to deal with climate change. You know, this is not a, an Exxon kind of organization. But when it comes to the group as a whole dealing with the problem, mm -mm. and that's the, pro that's the challenge that we face with the large financial conglomerates, many of whom are actually uh, US-based. It's a cultural bias, which is um, deeply problematic. And you talk about leadership, and I, I, I'm fascinated by the example of John McCain, Senator John McCain. Mm -hmm. He was very, very early on one of the Republicans who got climate change. He co-sponsored bills, et cetera. You know, and he was very happy to take on uh, Donald Trump and a range of other people on a range of issues. So he was no uh, you know, he stood, he, he challenged racism when that person in his audience accused Barack Obama of being whatever. So he was no uh, pushover. But interestingly, as the Republican Party moved more and more into the extreme climate denialist Tea Party kind of mode, John McCain became silent about climate change. Um, in his book, just before he died, he sort of did all the mea culpas that one does when one's facing death, and he didn't mention climate change. Um, so I think there's a, a, a cultural challenge we face in a sort of willful blindness of the people at the top, um, which the rest of us have to compensate for because actually they're taking society, civilization down with them. Um, and, and we just have to uh, do everything we can to mitigate that problem. Yeah, and you spoke earlier about one of the characteristics of the leadership we require is to not have a conflict of interest. And the way you've set up preventable surprises gives you, gives you access <clears throat> in a very kind of direct way. Yeah. And I guess conflict of interest is something that we can structure around, but I'm also, yeah. I know you need to, to go travel in a moment, but maybe we could also close with a sense of what is, what is trainable 
You talk yes. about bravery, courage, collaborative spirit. Some of these things we yeah. can we can support and develop in people. Yeah. Some are innate, and things like conflicts of interest we can also structure. So, what would you say is, is <clears throat> excuse me? What would you say is trainable for the kind of leadership that we require now? Well, I think one thing is to do much more active international benchmarking. So why is it possible for all the central banks that mean anything to be part of this network, but Fed not? You know, what, and what does that mean about the fear and um, self-censoring of the people who are decision-making at the Fed? Similarly about insurance companies, the insurance companies, the European and even Australian uh, insurance companies are taking climate change into account in quite serious ways, certainly in underwriting, but also investment. Um, practically none of the US insurance companies are doing so. Um, what does it, so, so kind of peer, peer group benchmarking um, to raise standards and embarrass, embarrass the, the laggard behavior, I think would, could be very useful. Mm -hmm. um, I think people within these organizations, I, I, I know that, you know, staff at Amazon um, and other companies have challenged their, their executives in public at AGMs about their lack of action. You know, why aren't we seeing that at the large banks, at, at the large insurance companies? Those are the things of course, it's risky. It's people are worried about career risk. People are worried about promotion possibilities. But that's where the space to operate comes from. And you know, a company management is not going to sack twenty of its brightest talent uh, individuals. People coming into an organisation have huge influence. You know, ask ask the recruiter, ask the head of HR, ask the investment uh, the headhunter does the company accept uh, climate changes, human created and anthropogenic, and, and does it have a plan? And if it doesn't have uh, a good answer, choose another company and tell them why you chose that. You know, we've all got spaces to operate. Uh -huh. And uh, I think my, my hope is that you, we, your network, um, really use our spaces um, to the maximum. Yeah, thank you. That's maybe a very good note to close on. We all have spaces to operate in and let's have the courage, the bravery, the commitment to, to work within the spaces that we do have. Thank you so much, Raj. And thank you for your... Very well, and your, your health challenges also, wish you very well with that. And thank you. Hope to see you thriving into the new year and I'm sure we will meet again before too long. My motto uh, is living adventurously, and we have no choice. Thank you. Bye-bye, Robin. Bye, Rush. Mm -hmm.